you're out front and you can hear my voice, come on in and find a seat near the front if you can. Um, good morning. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Matt Ortiz. I am uh, one of the pastors here. And um, I, uh, as, as you know, our church has some great relationships with other churches and, and pastors and elders from, uh, from other churches here in San Diego. And we've chosen to be in fellowship with several of those churches. And one of the churches that, that we're in fellowship with is uh, Kaleo Church in El Cajon with uh, Pastor Tim Kane, and he's been here on occasion uh, to preach. I've been able to preach at his church a, a couple of times, and, and uh, they've just been really, really encouraging to us, especially, um, you know, when there was a, a two-month period when I was kind of out of pocket. We had other pastors come in. You got to meet some of the other pastors and church planters, and, and we've just been incredibly, incredibly blessed by them, not just when they're here, but throughout, um, just throughout doing ministry together over the last several Several years. This morning, uh, from Kaleo, we have uh, Wes Van Fleet, who um, is a really encouraging brother to me personally. Um, he's going to be teaching us this morning. He also did some teaching for us uh, when I was involved in Crossroads Church down in South Bay in National City, and we did church in the park, and he did some teaching for us in the park, which was phenomenal, just really, uh, really encouraging. I mean, uh, his, he's got an incredible story. You should get to know him. Uh, after the service, uh, for a while, his his life was all about being a professional skateboarder, and uh, maybe then it was the military. Now he finds himself in the ministry, and and uh, he can tell you more about it himself. But he's going to be teaching uh, you this morning, and I'm going to be reading the text from which he will be uh, teaching, and it's from the book of Philippians. I'm going to read it, and then I'm going to pray for him. It's Philippians chapter one, starting in in verse twelve, and it says this. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some, indeed, preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Would you bow your heads with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your grace. God, we thank you so much um, for your good news, the gospel, the good news of, of who Jesus is, what he has done, what he is doing to make us right with you and to advance his kingdom of grace. God, I pray, Lord, that as we, as we worship you this morning, as, as we reflect on who you are and what, you're, what you've done and what you're doing, that our hearts would be changed and that we would become more like Christ. God, I pray that you would give us soft hearts. Thank you for Wes and the brother that he is. Thank you for uh, the work that you have done in his life and through him. Thank, thank you for his, his faithfulness to your word and his willingness to serve us this morning. We pray, Lord, that, that you would give him the ability to preach with power and conviction this morning. Um, and that we would all be changed because of his message. 
of the gospel, the good news of who Jesus is. We pray this in your name. Amen. Would you welcome Wes as he comes forward this morning? Well, good morning. Quick story, just about Matt and Josh, that hopefully will encourage you guys. Uh, 2007, I moved down here to help plant a church in, in Chula Vista, and after a couple years, I ended up leaving that church and, and found myself at Kaleo and El Cajon, where I'm at now, and they were three months old at the time, uh, and I was just broken and hurt by the church, and didn't care about ministry anymore. I just wanted to be fed and meet brothers and sisters that, that really loved Jesus and, and really just cared for one another. And so I went, went to this church, and I had heard, you know, about Tim Kaine, who you guys might have heard preach here before, and what a good preacher he was, that he, you know, sat under John Piper for how, a year and all these cool things. So I'm excited. Just seems like a good church. Heard a lot of good things. Uh, and so I'm all hyped up, and I walk into the service, and the guy preaching looked a little bit different than Tim Kaine. Uh, it was Matt Ortiz, and he was preaching on John 13, and it was one of the sweetest sermons I had ever heard. It was just so comforting and made much of Christ. And then at that same night, got to meet Josh and hear him lead worship for the first time with, without sandals or shoes. Uh, and I think his beard might have been bigger back then. Uh, but so it, it's kind of cool because we have this relationship and we've known each other for so long and we've heard so many stories of you guys and what the Lord has done through you guys and in you guys. And so it's, it's really neat for me to be able to finally come preach here and get to put some faces to a lot of the names and, and get to see some of you saints who have blessed uh, so many people. And so I'm going to pray and then we'll get into the text. Father, we, we acknowledge that you are our God, and, and Lord, you are our shepherd. Lord Jesus, we, we ask that even now you would lead us to come and understand your word, and through your word we would understand you. Do pray, Spirit, that as you uh, spoke through David in Psalm 139, that you would search the depths of our heart even now, uh, see if there's any grievous ways in us. You would expose those and cast our eyes upon the Lord Jesus and that by gazing at him, as 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, we would be changed from one degree of glory to another. So please come, uh, do what you do well, Lord, and, and change our hearts through the power of your word, through your spirit. In Christ's name, amen. So we, we, we all live in a culture that tells us to do anything necessary to escape suffering, don't we? All right, all the commercials we see on TV are products that, man, if you're dealing with this kind of suffering, if you only try this or eat this way or do this thing, you might experience pleasure. You might escape the suffering. And when suffering comes, especially for us who have faith in Christ, we know that suffering can really expose and start to shake our faith, can't it? Think about those who you have known in your life who have said over and over that they love Jesus. You've watched them go to church. You've watched them serve people. You've watched what seemed like good, healthy faith. And yet when suffering comes, how many do we know who have walked away because of that suffering? It might be the man who is going through a divorce and questions, how in the world could God allow this and still love me? 
It might be the young teenage girl who is diagnosed with stage four cancer, and although her parents taught her growing up that God loved her and was good, she would question how could a good God allow such suffering. Brothers, it might be that pastor that we had seen serve so faithfully for years and years and years, and when his family was tragically taken away, asked God how in the world could you do that to someone who served you for so long. You see, the, the thing about suffering is it's real and we can't ignore it. And yet, the thing about suffering is it really does expose what we believe. We all know that when suffering comes, it can be extremely hard to believe in God and, and even harder to believe that there's a purpose behind it, isn't it? Well, this morning we find Paul in the midst of suffering himself. He's, he's literally chained day and night to another soldier that would be responsible for guarding him. The soldier would probably work six to eight hour shifts um, and chain Paul to himself. And so it's very interesting because in our text we have the Apostle Paul who was entrusted with the gospel to go from province to province, from city to city, and declare it confined to a prison and even more strictly confined to a guard. I get to this part of the text and I ask myself, how can a God who entrusted a gospel to go to the nations bind someone to a prison cell? How can that suffering be for good? If, if it's about good news being spread and declared, how can this have a purpose? How could this be beneficial at all? Won't this slow down that same gospel that's been entrusted to Paul? Well, if we look to the end of this morning's passage, and this will show where we're going a little bit, uh, we'll kind of see what's going on with Paul. He says in verse 18, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. So, looking to the end of the text, and hopefully priming and preparing us for the rest of this text, we can at least see that in Paul's suffering, he's rejoicing. We don't see him ignoring it. We don't see him trying to escape it. But quite the opposite, he's rejoicing. You see, I think this implies that there is a purpose in suffering for Paul. It's not wasted. There, there is a purpose underneath the suffering that is going to cause him to rejoice, even if it means he's stuck in chains. So how is it that Paul can rejoice in suffering? How is it that a man who is experiencing so much suffering, how can he rejoice? Well, let's take a look and let's see. Let's see what Paul says about his circumstances to the Philippian church. He says in verses 12, 13, he says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Do you guys see this? This is wild to me that Paul really sees that his imprisonment is for the sake of the gospel and that his, this good news, this message he's been entrusted with is advancing because of it. 
This is a paradox to me. That, that God is going to come and confine Paul in the way he has, and yet the gospel is going to advance in a way that at this time in history, it wouldn't have advanced if Paul was free and roaming from province to province. We see the specifics of this in verse 13 when, when he says, It has become known throughout the whole imperial guard or praetorium that, and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Paul's trying to say that even though he's being chained, the gospel itself cannot be chained. It cannot be bound. You can bind him all day long. You can shut him in a dark cell chained to another prison guard. And that's not going to stop the gospel. Now I want you guys to picture this scene with me. Most commentators, as I mentioned earlier, would say that Paul would be chained, or any prisoner in this day, for about six to eight hours a day. So you think of this new guard who has never met Paul yet, all right? He comes in to the, the prison cell and says, okay, well, you know, they, they do the whole switch of, of duties and all these things, and this new guard chains himself to Paul, and then we see something interesting happen, right? If Paul says the whole imperial guard has heard of the gospel, you can bet the new guy's in for a little sermon. Now, we sometimes think, man, I can't believe... Pastor Matt or someone else preached for an hour that one time. That was, um, my butt was hurting. I was tired. I got things to do. Paul's like, you're clocked in? You're good? Oh, we're chained. Okay, six to eight hours. Let's go through what is really about to happen. And so you could see it. Paul's starting to say, okay, there's this guy, Jesus. You might have heard rumors, right? He, he left heaven. He took on flesh, and then he lived this life perfectly obeying his father. And even though he deserved heaven for that perfect obedience, he died on a cross. Now, I know you've heard the rumors that that shut him up. And, and I know you've heard the rumors of that other myth that the real weirdos believe, that he's been raised from the dead and has ascended to the right hand of the father, is ruling and reigning, and is in control of every circumstance. And you could see this new guard going goodness gracious, what have I gotten into, right? The transfer papers go out. He's trying to get a, a new job. Can't handle listening to this cuckoo bird for a bit. But Paul is proclaiming this gospel day in, day out to the whole imperial guard. Now, Paul, Paul was joyfully proclaiming this, as we saw, remember verse 18, that he's rejoicing and he's doing so because Paul knows that the gospel is advancing. Paul cares far more about the gospel and about the great news that has saved him and transformed him and that is causing him to be changed more and more. He cares far more about that than comfort or a change of circumstances. Paul isn't worried about the repercussions of his proclaiming the gospel. He's not sitting there saying, man, what can I do to get out of this prison cell? What can I do to get more comfort? He's far more worried about the advance of the gospel, where we, I would argue, are far more worried about our circumstances and our comfort, aren't we? You see, for most of us, we read a story like this. We hear all the great stories of the martyrs and the persecutors of the church, or those who were persecuted in the church, and, and we think they're, they're exciting, and, and they can spur on our faith, but our lives can look a lot different. 
You see, most of us here haven't been in prison for sharing the gospel, let alone suffer for sharing the gospel. But do the events of our everyday lives serve to advance the gospel? I want you guys to ask yourself that. Do, do the events of my everyday life serve to advance the gospel? You see, when, when we're hypothetically chained eight to ten hours a day to our co-workers, do they know more than the fact that we're religious and good people? Or could they clearly explain that we actually believe in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ? What about that barista or that banker that you continue to run into over and over again? Do they know that you love the Lord Jesus? Have you used that one to two minutes every day for the last couple years to build a relationship and let them know that you have eternal joy? Now, some of you, not saying out loud, but in the back of your head right now, might be saying, well, you don't understand my coworkers. Right, or that barista, the one who, yes, I've tried to build a relationship with for three years, still spells my name wrong every single time. <laughs> or that banker who just has the weird eyes and doesn't seem to look me in the eye every time. How can I build a relationship with them? You, you might be thinking of all these circumstances that, man, how in the world could you build a relationship with these people? And how could you ever cross these boundaries that seem so difficult to proclaim the gospel. Well, I think the problem isn't. The problem isn't our circumstances. The problem isn't the people that we're dealing with. The problem deep down is one of love. The problem deep down is one of love. And the truth about this, as I, as I thought about this, as I look at the text and I see Paul and some other things that are going on, we really do share and proclaim the things we love most. We really do. We, we, we get excited about things and we really do share day in and day out. Uh, my youngest daughter, she's, she's almost two, and I remember we, we weren't supposed to be able to have kids and this long process, and then all of a sudden we ended up having... Uh, two girls, which I'm very thankful for. But the, after having the first girl, I would go out to the store for, for my wife. And, you know, she'd give me the list. And wives, you know that husbands can't keep the list. I always come back with 30 things we didn't need and two things we needed. And I would get in line, you know, behind, like, these moms that would be there with, with their kids, you know. And I'd be like, oh, how old's your kid? Oh, you know, she's so and so old. And then all of a sudden, I'm pulling out the phone with, you know, the pictures. Everyone says newborns are cute. My newborn wasn't cute, just like the rest of them. And look at my daughter. She's so beautiful. Let me tell you the story of what happened in the hospital. And then guess what happened? And I could have given so many stories about the Lord's faithfulness, but I was more excited about my daughter. I, I wanted to explain this joy, this love that I really had in my heart for my daughter but I missed so many opportunities about the Lord's faithfulness to give a barren woman some children. And you see, that the, the key is deep down, we really do share what we're most excited about, the things we love most. For those of you here who are on Facebook or Instagram or one of uh, 10,000 different social networking sites, 
There, I, I just love, as a pastor of our church, one of the easiest ways to shepherd is to just go on people's Facebook and just read comments for like 10 minutes. When I know a guy is, is struggling with certain things, I'll go on his Facebook and watch what he's posting, seeing where his heart's at. And, and you guys know just as much as I do. We, we share the things we love most. You know, when the, in the season we're in right now, when the, the presidential debates start to happen, all of a sudden, you know, the, the people who love Jesus turn into the most chaotic, mean people on Facebook, and you tell their God has switched from the Lord Jesus who reigns to this potential candidate who might bring that hope that they're finally thinking will come. And so we can see by the things we share, by the things we talk about, that we do share about what we love most. Well, this isn't anything new. This is what we see in today's passage with Paul. How is it that Paul can continue to rejoice even though there is suffering in the gospel? How can he share what he loves most even though he has every reason to whine and complain? From what we have seen so far, we can see that Paul talked about what gave him the most joy. He talked about Jesus with the whole imperial guard, right? Not just a few, not just most, but the whole imperial guard, and it's because he loved Jesus most. But you see, Paul also wanted them to know this joy. This wasn't a selfish love that just said, oh, Jesus died for my sins so that I could be forgiven and then keep it to myself, but Paul really believed the gospel. It had transformed him. It had rescued him from out of darkness and into light. And so he wants them to experience the same thing. He wants them to know this great God who created them and took on flesh so that they might know him. The love that Paul knew so well was a love that rescued him. You guys probably know the story. If not, there's uh, a book called Acts. And in chapter 9, there's a, there's a famous story in there. It's, it's Paul's conversion. Right? Paul was this persecutor of the church. He was one who was, was so driven to shut this gospel message down that he was willing to kill. We saw him, the, feet, or the, the clothes of Stephen laid at his feet, a symbol of him giving the go on Stephen's death in Acts 7. Uh, and we see Paul going to any means necessary to shut down these rumors of this one who had raised from the dead. If you look at Acts 9, 3 through 5, it says it this way. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? Now at this point, I'm sure you see the rest of the verse on the screen, but it's really interesting. Paul, Paul's life at this point, he was a zealous Jew. He was destined to be this great Pharisee. And he is on a rampage to kill Christians, to shut the mouth of those who still believe this silly myth that Jesus was raised from the dead. And the irony in this text is so beautiful and also so crazy because he really believes Jesus died on the cross. Paul believes at this, this at that point. But he doesn't believe Jesus raised from the dead. He believes that Jesus' mouth had been shut by the crucifixion. That this crazy dude talking about being God and all of these things was finally shut up. 
And then the irony of whose voice speaks to him is just so loud here. Paul thinks it's, it's God, right? Who are you, Lord? And, and just making sure. And then all of a sudden, it is me. It's Jesus. Could you imagine? Could you imagine that day being confronted with the one that you were on the road to go and shut the voice of? The people who were following him, who loved him, who were suffering for him? Could you imagine the shame and the guilt in that moment? See, Jesus would have been just in destroying him that moment, but he had a different plan. You see, God was coming. He was coming to take a man who persecuted the church and transform his heart into one who loved those who were persecuted. He was going to transform the persecutor of the church into a man who would have a heart for those who are suffering. God's love for Paul is what made him a man who could rejoice in his suffering. And it, this happened because he saw, Paul saw deep down, that his suffering really did have a purpose. This purpose was proclaiming the good news. It was seen as Philippians 1, 12 says that the gospel was advancing. He saw that his suffering had a purpose, that God was using it for that. And you see, as we talked about earlier, that it's not an issue of circumstances or people, but it's an issue of love. Paul understood deep down not only redemption and being rescued, but this love that God had for him. And that's why we can see the whole imperial guard had heard the gospel. The gospel is advancing here in Philippians despite Paul's chains. And it's because Paul is far more moved by the love God has for him than the thoughts or the ideas of getting out of prison or finding some temporary comfort. And what's so cool is the, the crazy picture that we saw earlier that the gospel's still advancing despite being stuck in a prison and being chained to a guard is that God can even do more through that suffering than in just Paul. Look at verse 14. It says, And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. This is crazy because I'm a structure guy, so I, I see things that have a result, and because of that, that will have a result. And I would never pick to, to set up a way for evangelism and the gospel to advance the way God did here. First, the imperial guard here, Hill hears because of a man chained and stuck in a prison cell. But then the Philippian church, which we can kind of understand from this text, that before that, before Paul had been imprisoned, they actually were afraid to share the good news. Right? That's why he says because of this, now they can share without fear, which means before they were actually scared to share the gospel. But it's had this snowball effect. Paul's suffering has caused many to hear the gospel, but even the Philippian church is starting to have more confidence and starting to share much more boldly because of that suffering. You see, the, I think the fear for the Philippian church before was because of the government 
for, for the Roman government and the government in Philippi and just in the New Testament church we see in the early ages was that the government would often do everything necessary to shut the mouth of people who had opposing ideologies, who, who would deter people from believing in what the government desired to bring peace among their culture. And that's what the government has done with Paul. They've shut him up, they've locked him up, and they think they, like Paul thought he once did, have shut the mouth of these Christians going around talking about this crazy man who's been resurrected from the dead. But you see, that spurred on the Philippian church through God's sovereignty and his providence to actually cause the gospel to advance. Where they once were timid and fearful, they now share without fear because of how God is advancing his gospel. Now, we, we have to at least notice in this text where their confidence lies. Now, Paul didn't say, bring me the parchments so I can write the eight steps to the best evangelism. He didn't say, let me write you guys a book on if you follow these four steps, people will be converted in Philippi. No, you see, verse 14 says that what has happened is they've become confident in the Lord. That's wild, right? Because I know at the beginning of this text, I'm wondering how is God going to cause the gospel to advance in a jail cell? And now God has brought his church to have confidence in the Lord because of Paul's suffering. In a world where everything around them, everything they saw with their eyes, looked to stop the gospel, right? Paul's chains, Paul's imprisonment. You have their own threat of being imprisoned for speaking the gospel. Everything around them told them they should probably keep quiet, but their confidence in the Lord caused them to share. You see, they really were remembering deep down this great love that God had first had for them. God had used this suffering to make them remember how he had first loved them, and that was the right and good motivation to sharing the gospel. You see, their confidence in the Lord is one that deep down remembers how they have been loved. So we've seen two ways so far that Paul's suffering has caused the gospel to advance. First, we saw that it was being in a prison cell and chained to a guard that the whole imperial guard had come to hear. Second, we see that the snowball effect that had taken place because of Paul's suffering is that the Philippian church is now sharing boldly. Now the third way we see is that Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, re he rejoices in his rival's success. And this one, I'm not here. I'll be honest with you guys. I, I, when I studied this, I don't get how Paul is here. He, he has a better understanding of God's love for him and, and God's sovereignty over things than I do. Listen, listen to the text, verse 15 through 18. And, and if you know the text, don't just read it as a familiar thing, but really put yourself in Paul's shoes. He says... Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. Now listen, the former proclaim Christ 
out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. I don't, I don't get this one. For someone who's been transformed by the gospel to be stuck in a prison cell and to hear that there's these guys going around, one preaching this good news that should humble you, but they're teaching it to, to kind of build up themselves, right? They want, to, they want to be famous. They want to be well-known. But then to know that their motives are to actually make Paul's chains seem heavier. They want to afflict him. How, I, I don't, I've never met someone like this. Maybe I have, and I just didn't know their intentions. But could you imagine preaching the gospel for the sake of wanting someone to suffer. That makes no sense to me. I hear something like this, and I am devising every strategy. I've seen all four seasons of prison break. I'm doing everything I can to get out of this jail cell and take care of these guys. I, I want them off the streets. I want them away from my church. I want to do everything necessary because the gospel is about the glory of our Lord Jesus, and it's so good that to cause some kind of junk like this to happen seems so ridiculous to me. It seems so wicked, and it seems worthy of death. But Paul is not shaken. Paul isn't frustrated. While they're trying to take advantage of Paul being sidelined by legal troubles, Paul is rejoicing. Paul is finding joy and his purpose in this suffering. You see, he doesn't care about his comfort. He doesn't care about correcting these guys because he knows that if the whole imperial guard can come to hear the gospel through him stuck here, the God who did that is the same God who can take care of the Philippian church. He is a God who is sovereign enough to deal with these men. And the craziest thing is, Paul can actually say, that even if their motives are wrong, God can use their preaching about Christ? That's insane. That's like me having one of our interns at our church saying, hey, I, I know your whole point in preaching today is so that you can get a following and that you could make jokes about me and so everyone will follow you and leave the church. Go for it as long as Christ is glorified. Like, it'd be crazy. But you see, Paul really believes it. He believes that as long as Christ is proclaimed, he can rejoice. He's been so loved by Jesus, and he knows this love so deeply that he's not shaken. Paul cares about the gospel advancing. Now, the fact that he sees God using this kind of suffering for the advancement of the gospel shouldn't surprise us. This isn't the first time we have seen it, is it? You see, the, the, the source of Paul's joy and suffering is actually the clearest demonstration of God using suffering to advance the gospel. You see, that suffering is the Lord Jesus himself. Jesus is the eternal Son of God who did not let his circumstances stop him from doing the work that the Father gave him. Think about it. 
the king of glory who had spent all of eternity in heaven, having angels worshiping him, ministering to every single need, takes on flesh, is born in a feeding trough next to feces and dirty animals. His life is marked by not having a place to rest his head. His life and his circumstances could have shouted to him over and over, you deserve better. You are the king. And it could have caused him to sit there and just say, why, Lord? I'm just going to sit here until I go back to glory. But the craziest thing about it is he knew there was a purpose in his suffering. So instead of whining and being so overwhelmed by his circumstances, the Lord's life is marked by healing the sick. It's marked by raising the dead. It's marked by casting demons out of the oppressed. And so despite suffering, his life shows good service and faithful obedience to the one who loves him. Jesus' life earned him nothing but heaven. At the end of his ministry, he should have been cast into heaven, and he should have been rewarded with all things in this world because of his perfect life. But we see the suffering gets worse. Gets worse. On, on the night that he was betrayed, we see Jesus in the garden, right? We see the, the weight of what's coming on the cross starting to bear on his soul. And we see he isn't just a God who says, well, don't ever complain. When your circumstances are hard and you know suffering's coming, let me show you the proper response. He says in Matthew 26, 39, my father, if it be possible, let the cup pass, right? He wants the cup to pass. If there's any way, any other way in the world, let it pass. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. See, he can complain in a sense. He can, he can be real about his suffering, but nevertheless, it's as you will. Or in other words, as we see in Paul, it is whatever purpose you have in your suffering I am submitting to. See, Jesus knew there was a purpose in his suffering, and instead of trusting his circumstances, he set his face toward the cross. Like Paul knew God was purchasing a people for himself. Jesus had left heaven filled with the love his father had had for him for all eternity and destined and driven with the purpose of loving others. You see, the cross was the worst suffering of all of human history, but its purpose was to exponentially advance the gospel. John 12, 32 says it like this, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, talking about the cross, will draw people to myself. See, Jesus knew it had a purpose. He wasn't just dealing with aimless and mindless suffering. It had a purpose of saving God's people. Through his suffering, he would draw people from every tribe and nation and tongue, including those of the imperial guard, of those in the Philippian church, and even those who would start to proclaim the gospel with wrong purposes. Jesus' suffering causes us to rejoice in ours because our suffering has a purpose as well. 
I think we can see this in a couple different ways. First, that story we read in Acts 9 about when Jesus had revealed himself to Paul and, and called him to be one who loved the persecuted. Notice Jesus' words to Paul. Saul, then Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Jesus had already ascended to the right hand of the Father. But because by faith we are so intimately united by Christ or to Christ, when we suffer, he understands. When we suffer, he is with us. So the, the great purpose in our suffering, one, is that we have a Lord who is with us and knows it. He's not a God up in heaven just saying, suffer well, I'll see you when you get here. No, I, I've suffered far more than you will ever suffer. And yet my heart, as Hebrews 4 talks about, we don't have it up here, but his heart sympathizes with us. He has a heart that's open to us and, and loves us and understands us in our suffering. Second, we can rejoice in suffering because we know that suffering will one day end for God's people. Revelation 21.3 says it like this. Apostle John, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Listen to this promise. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Suffering will end. For God's people, it's, it's temporary. Third, like Paul, we can now know that God has a purpose for our suffering. And this purpose is the advance of the gospel. What greater news to know that God can use suffering not only to rescue people, but to transform those people into those so moved by the love and redemption they have received that they joyfully share that same news. What an honor it is that when he stirs our affections within us to actually love him and know him, that we can have a heart for people who were like us once, enemies and hostile to the gospel. What an honor. What a joy it is. I want to close by showing you guys a picture of what this looks like. To actually see the gospel in suffering, advancing. About 250, 300 years after Philippians was written, there was 40 Roman soldiers and they were brought before the governor and they were told to either deny Christ and worship Roman, Roman idols or they would lose their, their military status and maybe even their citizenship. So the governor, he had these soldiers, these 40 soldiers who were confessing to be Christians, stripped naked and herded into the middle of this frozen lake. Now he set up this perimeter, this, this group of soldiers on the outside of the lake that would guard them from being able to escape the freezing conditions. After enduring a whole night of this, and, and I don't know about you guys, I don't deal with the cold. When I was in the military, God in his great love for me decided to send me to very cold places, and I hate it. Uh, but at night, being naked on a frozen lake 
that would shake your faith. It would expose what's down in there, wouldn't it? So after this, this whole night, the governor saw that they had been resolved to keep their faith, and he starts to set up hot baths all around the perimeter of the lake thinking that as they're freezing and seeing the steam coming off the hot baths, that it would start to weaken their resolve. Well, one of the men did weaken. One man, within an instant, went sprinting towards the outside of the lake and jumped in one of the hot baths. And at this moment, I know in this story, I start to think to myself, I've walked with this brother. He has stood up for Christ. If, if he's going to turn on Christ, how do I know I won't be next? How can God use this kind of suffering for our good? And all of a sudden, the story takes a turn. One of the soldiers that was on the perimeter that wasn't a Christian, although this one had left, seized the resolve of the others and had watched it all night strips himself naked, runs to the center of the lake, looks the governor dead in the eyes and says, I too am a Christian. You see, despite the suffering, God can use this kind of suffering for the advance of the gospel. God doesn't waste our suffering in fusion. I don't want you guys to be shocked or afraid when suffering comes. You can be real about the suffering the way our Lord was real, but don't miss the purpose He has in your suffering. You have a Savior who is with you, a Savior who has promised it will end, and a Savior who has promised to advance the good news through your suffering. Let's pray. Father, we confess there have been many times that our suffering has put our eyes on ourself and has caused us to desire pleasure or escape or anything necessary to make the, stuff, the suffering stop. Jesus, we thank you so much that you came and lived a life of suffering with much rejoicing, and yet, despite your perfect obedience and meeting all the demands of the law, you were crucified for our failure to trust you in our suffering. Jesus, thank you that you defeated that death and you resurrected from the dead, declaring that we, as we have died with you, will also rise with you. Spirit, I ask that you would start even now to create in our hearts a, a greater understanding of your love for us so that when suffering does come, we would trust you, we would see that there is a purpose in it. We would want so badly the gospel to advance through our suffering the way it has through your own son. And so, Lord, I pray for infusion that you would do that work here in Escondido, Lord, and the surrounding areas, that you would use this church to be a people who are not like the culture and run from suffering, but endure it for the sake of the gospel. In Christ's name.